Hey podcast listeners, welcome back to Know Thyself. Today we have a special treat, I think, talking to Will Bagley, historian of the American West, author of numerous books, numerous articles. More importantly, he's a member of a speaker's bureau, so he's animated, he is opinionated, he's not afraid to speak his mind or be controversial, and so he makes for a great interview. Even though I originally reached out to him to talk about the Donner Party disaster, you'll see the interview ranges much more broadly than that. He's able to paint a big picture of what's going on in the American West. And he brings in characters, everybody from Thomas Jefferson, Lewis and Clark, Samuel Brannan, James K. Polk, and really sets the stage for why the Donner Party was moving west and what befell them. And even though he's able to paint a very broad picture, he's also able to hone in on individual human stories because he knows it all so well. So I'm grateful to Mr. Bagley for granting me this interview. Just a little note about how the interview went down. Mr. Bagley was speaking on a landline phone. That's just the way it worked out. So you'll notice that even though the audio quality is pretty good, I think Joshua did a great job. Thank you, Joshua. Cleaning it up, making it audible. It doesn't have quite the same dynamic range as you might expect. Be that as it may, I think it's a great interview. And without further ado, I'm going to move into my discussion with Will Bagley. And if you don't mind, he'll get you at last. One more Welcome back to Know Thyself. I'm here with Will Bagley. Very grateful to have him on the podcast. As I was doing the Donner Party episode, I guess you could say I became a little bit obsessed with their story. And not just with the story, but with the individual members of the Donner Party. And I realized that there's a lot about the Donner Party that I just don't know. And I wanted to learn more, so I reached out to Will Bagley. And I can't think of a better person to talk to about this, because Will has published numerous books and many, many articles about overland migration, the fur trade, mining, military skirmishes and battles, American Indians, pretty much everything that has anything to do with the westward expansion of the United States. He's the winner of numerous awards. Uh, in fact, he's won the Spur Award from the Western Writers of America. He's won the Best Book Award from both the Denver Public Library Association and the Western History Association. Will might be best known for his book, Blood of the Prophets, but he has published many other books. He's currently working on the Whites Want Everything, Native Voices of the American West. And if I read your bio correctly, Will, you're also a bluegrass musician. <laughs> I was a bluegrass musician. I played kachunk guitar, that is, uh, rhythm guitar. I, I did, during my uh, career, which ended about 1982, record a long-playing record called The Legend of, Legend of Jesse James. And last fall... I put together a collection of recordings I made in 1977 and 1978, which I called Crows Will Pick Our Bones. And I'm still debating whether or not to uh, figure out current technology and release it as something other than a very limited release CD. But that's an entirely different world and career. You sound very busy. Oh, yes. I'm always working on something. I've done a uh, multi-volume documentary history of the Mormons called Kingdom in the West, and I'm working on volume 16, which will conclude the series, uh, which began with the official journal of the Brigham Young Pioneer Company. That was released in 1997, uh, 150 years after the 
trek of the Pioneer Camp to Salt Lake. Uh, and the church itself had never published it, so it was a great start. And the big wind-up of Volume 16, which will come out next year, is The Whites Want Everything, Indian Voices from the Mormon West. They're at the very heart of the story. If I've contributed anything to uh, our understanding of the 19th century history, it's uh, it's how important, well, th- that the Mormons are very much at the center of it because of where they wound up at Great Salt Lake City, but that it all starts and begins with the, the first Americans, the, the Indian story. And I find the the overland immigration story especially compelling because it's a dual story of triumph and tragedy. Triumph of uh, the noble white pioneers, but it all comes at enormous cost to the native peoples who made it possible. Overland immigration never would have worked in the 1840s if it hadn't been for the substantial assistance of American tribes. That's a forgotten aspect of the the story. My first interest in Western history was in overland immigration. I'm halfway through a proposed four-volume history of the Oregon and California trails called Overland West. I I think my, my best books is either the first volume, So Rugged and Mountainous, Blazing the Trails to Oregon and California. It covers 1812 to 1848. And then the second volume, which is With Golden Visions Bright Before Them, Trails to the Mining West, 1848 to 1852. I've got two more volumes to cover the best part of the story, which is the 1850s and the 1860s. And if I live long enough, I sure hope I can finish it. The year before the Donner Party set out in 1846, there was a completely forgotten, well, not nothing's ever completely forgotten, but stories that make Americans uncomfortable are very often forgotten. And in 1848, an old fur trader named Stephen Meek uh, led a thousand people into Oregon's eastern wastelands and his proposed cutoff to the Willamette Valley wound up killing a lot more people than died with the Donner Party. But they didn't they didn't eat each other. So the the really sexy element of the Donner Party is the Donner Party are, are victims of starvation. And they do what any human beings do in such desperate circumstances. And there's a, there's a movie that came out a couple of years ago that may be the best movie ever made on the pioneer era called The Meek Cutoff. It can't show that there were a thousand people who followed Meek, but it does a pretty good dramatization of it. So the Meek disaster was worse than the Donner disaster. Was this Meek disaster the worst in overland migration history? That, that, was, that belongs to the Mormons, and you've got two candidates. The first one is Brigham Young's handcart scheme, which is what uh, one of his victims celebrated it as in 1856, wrote a song called The Handcart Scheme. It was really about money because Brigham Young resented having to lay out a lot of money 
to get more people, more Mormon converts to the Salt Lake Valley, and he wanted them to do what everybody else used animals to do and pull handcarts to Salt Lake. So in 1856, he makes a bunch of promises that he completely ignores, and his underlings, the missionaries who were running this scam, are terrified that if they don't make it work and get people to Salt Lake, that Brigham Young will come down on them like a load of bricks, which they were right. For this reason, they, they send out parties very late in the year when they knew that it snows every month of the year at South Pass. There's a whole mythology that's built up around the handcart disaster, but the reality is everybody knew that you didn't want to be around South Pass uh, any later than October, and even then it was risky. The story that it was early storms is absolute malarkey. The weather hit right on schedule, and the, the mythology surrounding the handcart disaster is, is, is hooey. Uh, there only had to be one miracle to save these poor people, and that was to not have it snow at South Pass before December. You wouldn't need pies found miraculously in the road or uh, whatever, or you wouldn't have had... Uh, two to three hundred people die. Well, I heard a story that there was some leader who encouraged them on by saying that he would personally eat every flake of snow that fell between Nebraska and Salt Lake. It was Colonel William Kimball. He was Heber C. Kimball, who was a Mormon big shot. He was his oldest son. Uh, Kimball is a very colorful character and the ancestor of many of my very best friends. But Kimball writes a letter that makes clear why Brigham Young was running this scam, and it was to build a military to fight the United States. So th th these, these stories get really complicated. Yeah, I'll say. So you're saying that this Kimball wrote a letter documenting that Brigham Young was bringing these pioneers to Utah as a way to raise an army to fight, what was it, uh, Johnson's army? Oh, it was the United States Army. Johnson's army is part of the propaganda story. It was the army of the United States, and it wasn't an invasion because guess what? The United States army can go any place in American territory it wants to. <laughs> so just by calling it Johnson's army, I'm part of the propaganda. Yes, exactly. That's a whole different issue. But if we want to go to... Uh, what happens to the Donner Party, that was part of an invasion. And it was an invasion of American settlers of, of, of a sovereign Mexican province, which was Alta California. The first American family to go overland to Oregon or California was Joel Walker, who was a brother of a famous mountain man named Joseph Walker. And he took his family with a fur trade caravan going out to what became the last rendezvous. And then he, he didn't like Oregon, so he went south to California. But the first wagon train to head to California left Missouri in 1841, and it consisted of about 60 people. And they got to Fort Hall, where the Hudson Bay 
agents warned them, there is no wagon road to California. So you might as well take the Hudson Bay route to Oregon and that you'll be safe. But being Americans, about 30 people uh, decided that they were going to go to California, and they they do. And they have to blaze a wagon road. And they're essentially winging it. But they actually make it without losing a cert, losing any people. Uh, and they bring with them Nancy Kelsey, the first woman to make it to California overland. These are all epic American stories of survival. In my approach to telling these fantastic stories, I've tried to focus on how important Indians are in every one of them. The Bidwell-Bartleson party, as it's now known, wouldn't have made it without substantial help from American Indians. They start what really begins as a trickle, because in 1842, another 100 people set out, this time for Oregon, and they take with them a young attorney promoter named Lansford W. Hastings and the first Indian agent, quote-unquote, the first American official appointed to go to Oregon, Elijah White. But everybody who heads west is is pursuing the American dream of getting rich in one way or another. But I'm confused by the claim that the Native Americans wanted to help people who were essentially coming to displace them from their lands. Why would they do that? You need to consider what the world looked like to Native peoples who had lived there for thousands of years. After the Europeans arrived, the Europeans bring with them two major influences on American Indians. One is their technology and their horses, and the second is European diseases. Now, the, the impact of technology is indisputable. The impact of disease is, is more controversial. Even before most of them even meet an, a European, they're already dealing with the disaster of these diseases, and they kill 9 out of 10 people in the Americas. These are all estimates because we... All numbers uh, related to prehistory are estimates, and we don't know how many people lived in the Americas when the Europeans showed up. Estimates range from 2 to 3 million to 20 million. When DeSoto marches through the American South, what does he find? He finds big urban cultures, uh, which are now often called the mound builders, but they had big agricultural societies, civilizations, that had enormous cities. But when LaSalle goes down the Mississippi River, those civilizations are gone. Those cities have vanished. It's that transformation that makes the, the Indians so committed to making the best of European contact that they can. And what they saw was European technology. And you need to include horses with that technology, which transforms uh, the Indians of the American Plains, and which is unavoidable. The, the Utes and Shoshones have always dealt with white traders very successfully. The, the big advantage I've discovered that Native peoples had was that white people 
considered native people bloodthirsty savages. And in fact, they were human beings, and they were every bit as intelligent and adaptable and dynamic as any other human beings are. And the bloodthirsty savages turned out to be the white people. What Native people expected when white people showed up was that they could come to some sort of mutually profitable arrangement. They, they would work up a hospitable arrangement with the white people who, in, until later it was too late, were simply passing through. But that was the advantage that Indians were looking for, was white technology. They'd already adapted big parts of it, such as horses, and transformed their lifestyles to adapt to it and create these dynamic Plains Indian cultures. And so did the Utes. So they just didn't yet see the Europeans as an existential threat like they turned out to be later. They didn't. And tribal cultures... If you go back and look at the Greeks in the Iliad, they're tribal cultures, and they have very distinct traditions of hospitality. Because of tribal traditions of hospitality, it was essential that people accepted the humanity of any other human. And this is my interpretation of why Indians did not recognize the threat that white people posed until it was too late. It was because they were tribal peoples who realized we're all in this together. And if we don't help each other, we're going to wind up murdering each other. (laughs) And helping people typically worked out better for everybody. Whites, for some damn reason, saw everything outside their own tribe as a threat. (laughs) Well, of course. They were trying to take all that technology they brought with them. So let's move the timeline up a little bit now to when the Donner Party leaves. What's going on in the country, or at least in the West, around the 1840s? Overland immigration has been a building phenomenon. And in 1843, there's the Great Migration. And almost a 1,000 people go to Oregon. In 1845, you have more people go. Uh, There are several thousand people that go to Oregon and a couple of hundred people go to California. And then in 1846, about a thousand people go to Oregon and a thousand people go to California. What's happening in California is that a sovereign nation, Mexico, is being challenged by all these American schemers and land pirates. And the, the Donner Party are part of this. Now, some of the American immigrants had actually gotten passports to go to Mexico. But other immigrants, like the Mormons, uh, simply want to go out and seize uh, the country for themselves. And a forgotten aspect of 1846 is that there are all these schemers, uh, like Lansford W. Hastings and Samuel Brannan. Uh, Brannan is a Mormon, and the Mormons are planning to go west in 1846, and Brannon actually does. He takes the first shipload of American immigrants around Cape Horn and arrives uh, shortly after uh, the war with Mexico has broken out 
and the American Navy has seized California. Brandon had plans to seize California uh, for himself and the Mormon Church. So when he comes around, comes into San Francisco Bay on the 30th of June, 1846, he sees the Portsmouth flying the American flag and the forts that the Portsmouth has seized about two weeks earlier, they're flying the American flag. And what does Sam Brandon, the patriotic Mormon, say? He says, there's that damn flag again. <laughs> Brandon had his own Mormon flag that he wanted to run up. <laughs> so I'm gathering that you have not bought into the whole manifest destiny thing by our discussion. No. And <laughs> a semi-religious scam that proclaims that God wants white Americans to seize the American West. And God had no such plan. They act. The Donner Party is is part of this mass immigration movement, which is divided between people who want to go to Oregon, which is a country claimed in 1846 by both the United States and Great Britain, and Mexico, which is California. Uh, James K. Polk is an American president, and he is scheming. And Polk has a vision which is controversial of an Amer a United States that reaches from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. The United States is undergoing a technological revolution, which involves electricity and steam. And when the founding fathers, Jefferson and Washington and the boys, came up with a co the concept of the United States, it involved a, a pretty limited vision of a United States that could be ruled from the East Coast. Thomas Jefferson, by <laughs> pure political accident, winds up buying the Louisiana Territory so Napoleon can finance his attempt to conquer Europe, and the United States winds up owning the old French empire of Louisiana. But even Jefferson himself didn't envision a continental nation. What he envisioned was a series of republics established as you went west, and that they would be self-ruling, modeled on the United States, but not necessarily the United States. So... Jefferson winds up buying the, a big, big chunk of the American West and sends out Lewis and Clark, and they go all the way to the Pacific Ocean, where Oregon has been discovered by competing imperial British interests. But Jefferson himself came pretty reluctantly to a vision of a continental nation. But he, he ultimately sort of buys into this. His disciples, who include a Missouri politician named Thomas Hart Benton, eventually buy into this vision of a continental nation. But, well, what makes that possible? Technology. A, a great Harvard historian, Frederick Merck, figures this out, that it is technology that transforms and makes possible this vision of manifest destiny. Because technology compresses distance. And by the 1830s, there's this enormous boom in railroads and steamboats. And steamboats essentially make possible President James K. Polk's vision of a continental nation 
1996. Polk has run on a platform of American expansion in 1844. He doesn't come up with a slogan of 54, 40, or fight, but he uh, does, after he's elected, propose that the United States has to have control of Oregon Territory. And by chance, the British have claimed and essentially own the Oregon Territories. Polk, through really risky politics, manages to secure what had been purely British territory belonging to the Hudson's Bay Company. And that's what the first volume of my epic history of the Oregon-California Trails is about, is, is how America acquires the Oregon country. And the Oregon country is what is today Oregon and Washington. Polk is, is running a very risky game uh, as he approaches 1846, where he risks going to war with both Mexico and Great Britain. And Great Britain at the time has the most powerful navy in the world and the most powerful empire in the world. When it comes down to the Oregon Territory, the British Empire simply decides they're not interested in going to war over a few northern forests. They're not interested in going to war with the United States. But Polk has risked going to war with Great Britain to settle up the Oregon question, as it's called. And in 1846, Polk, by essentially dumb luck, manages to get Great Britain to agree to what is now the American border. Great Britain surrenders its claim to the Oregon country and hands uh, what is now the state of Washington to the United States, which had no hope until Pope came along of a border that didn't consist, a northern border in Oregon that didn't consist of the Columbia River. Pope gambles and wins when Britain agrees to a border that runs along the current border between the United States and Canada. And meanwhile, he has gotten himself in a war with Mexico, which Mexico is not prepared to fight. Uh, Mexico is being run by a tin horn uh, dictator named Santana, and the United States very quickly conquers New Mexico and California, which is essentially all of the American Southwest. And all this happens as Americans are going west in 1846. There are about 2,000 Americans going west, and about 1,000 of them wind up in Oregon, and another 1,000 of them wind up uh, in California by June of 1846, has been seized by the United States Navy, and an American colonel named Stephen W. Carney is marching what is called the Army of the West from Missouri to New Mexico, which he quite handily conquers, and then marches on to California, which uh, Mexico wasn't quite prepared to turn over. But Carney arrives in Southern California in late 1846 
and essentially gets beaten at the Battle of San Pascal, um, but survives, and the United States Army is able to claim San Pascal as victory because the uh, Mexican forces beat Carney's invading army, but just doesn't have the drive to kill everybody. And meanwhile, a thousand Americans are flooding in over the Sierra Nevada, and most of them make it in time. But the uh, Donner Party is bringing up the rear of a scheme by Lansford W. Hastings to make himself president of the Republic of California. The way I see it is the Donner Party falls victims of a promoter and simply don't realize how dangerous it is to find yourself stuck in the Sierra Nevada in the wintertime. So as an overland historian, I assume you've traveled some of these trails we're talking about? I've traveled them all. <laughs> Not all and of them. I, I, but I have driven an automobile, hiked a good bit of the Oregon-California Trail, and I've been fascinated by the development and opening of the Oregon-California Trail, which is a pretty good story. Yeah, but what I really want to know is, in traveling these trails as an overland historian, have you ever found it necessary to eat somebody else? <laughs> Heck no, I got an automobile. <laughs> well, I just think that gives you more credibility on the topic. Well, I've never, <laughs> never wound up in starving times. So I understand that the Donner Party is traveling with the main wagon train until they get to, what is it, Fort Bridger. Then I heard that there is a journalist who tries to warn them from, uh, away from taking the Hastings Cutoff, a man named Edwin Bryant. He travels ahead, sees the Hastings Cutoff, says that it's going to be very difficult to get wagons, women, and children through this cutoff, and sends letters back to Fort Bridger telling them not to take it. Is this uh, your understanding? Well, that's, that's Bryant's story. Bryant is a, is a great character, and he writes a great book that he publishes uh, in, I think, 1849, called What I Saw in California. And it, it, it's one of the great epics of overland immigration. And Bryant is with the, the party that the Donner Party is in. And he gets to Fort Laramie uh, at the same time the Donner Party gets there. But he decides he's going to uh, leave wagons behind and take a pack train and blitz into California. And he succeeds in it. And he gets to Fort Bridger. The old mountain man, old Gabe, Jim Bridger, has with his partner, Louis Vasquez, put up a trading post on Black's Fork. Yeah, so what exactly was Fort Bridger? I come across that name all the time in these stories. So It's a fur post, and Vasquez and Bridger are fur traders, and they're 
watching the fur trade die. But they're still trading furs. What had been a very profitable fur trade has essentially died. The veteran fur traders have generally settled in either Oregon or California and made agreements that either gives them land in Oregon or land in Mexican California. And Jim Bridger claims that he's got a Mexican land grant, which he doesn't. But basically, he and his partner, Vasquez, have founded a trading post that they hope to profit from overland immigration. And they do. But basically, they're Indian traders. And so is a guy named John Sutter, a Swiss immigrant who bamboozles his way into an empire on the Sacramento River. And what you have are a series of very ruthless but successful schemers who uh, seize opportunities and establish their own little empires. Sutter is playing a very interesting game and essentially is promoting American immigration. But when the Mexican War breaks out, uh, it just so happens that one of the agents of American imperialism, John C. Fremont, has brought an expedition to California under the sponsorship of James K. Polk, and he winds up uh, supporting what is called the Bear Flag Revolt which breaks out in June of 1846. The, w the way I, I see this is that there are two stories here the, uh, of American expansion. So we're dealing with two stories, which complicates telling it. One is the broad context of expansion, and the other is the tragedy of the Donner Party. What, what I've been talking about for the last hour is, is the broader story. And I think you seem a little bit skeptical about some of the character or motivation of these figures, these, these iconic figures of the Old West, whether it's James Sutter or John C. Fremont, uh, Brigham Young. Oh, in, in the handcart pioneers, I've just been working up a quote by one of my favorite overland diarists in 1852. He gets into Salt Lake. He's going to California, and he meets all these Mormons, and he's heard all the bad stories, but he says, these Mormons aren't such bad folks anyway. Nobody else could have done what they've done in this valley. And then he goes up and listens to Brigham rant, and he goes, but their leaders are a complete set of scoundrels. And that's an awful lot of what I see throughout the history of mankind. <laughs> Ordinary folks are great. But their rich leaders are scoundrels. So can I ask you about that? Because, okay, so in your study of history, you see patterns of behavior in these leaders or people who are powerful that you consider not very honorable. So I have a question. Is it causal or predictive? In other words, what I'm trying to say is, does it take a certain personality type to become a leader? Or, or is, is absolute power absolutely corrupting? That's more of what we see. Power is unleashes the worst aspects of human beings. So we all have some latent narcissism or entitlement or whatever it is, and as soon as we get a little bit of power, those aspects come out. Huh? That's why we have such problems with presidents, I think. Let me start over with an overview of 
the, the route to Donner Park takes. You can follow almost all, but not quite all, of the route of the Donner Party on modern highways. You would start from Independence, Missouri, and follow two-lane roads up into Nebraska and down to where Fort Kearney is today, and then follow more highways west. Eventually, by the time you get to the Green River, where the real Donner Party ordeal starts, you run into I-80. And I-80 will take you right past Bridger Ford. You'll miss what is essentially the Oregon Trail. And the Oregon Trail goes along the south side of the Platte River, then up the North Platte River to Fort Laramie, around the bend of the Platte River through Casper, up the Sweetwater River to South Pass. And at South Pass, you again run into big parts of the trail that where no highway to this day runs because the terrain's so so remote. It's not necessarily rough, but it's remote. Uh, from South Pass, you can take major highways down to, to Interstate 80. Now, the Donner Party doesn't really come together until they head out from Fort Bridger. Most of the people come from Illinois. And there's even there are even tales that Abraham Lincoln wanted to go to California and probably would have if he could have gotten disentangled from Mary Todd. I don't know if he would have made much of a meal, though. He was pretty thin. <laughs> there are all these fascinating patterns that happen. Who survives and who doesn't and what it says about human beings. But anyway, what happens at Fort Bridger is they talk to Jim Bridger, and it may be that Edward Bryant had written a letter warning people who followed him not to take Hastings Cutoff. Because whenever you you left the main trail, uh, you were going to be in bad shape. But James Kleiman had already met his old comrade, James Kleiman, at Fort Laramie. Kleiman is one of the great characters of American history. Wait, who met James Kleiman at Fort Laramie? Uh, James Reed. Okay. And in his old age, Kleiman uh, records that he warned James Reed to stick with the old trail. He said, it will be hard enough to get through that way. If you take the new one, anything can happen. But Reed said, no, there is a nigher route, which he'd read about in Lansford Hastings' Immigrant's Guide, and there's no sense in taking the long way. So we seem to have some indications that Reed was already determined to take the shortcut. And the trouble was, Lansford Hastings had ridden east over the cutoff and had done an exploration, but he hadn't taken wagons west of Fort Bridger, and there was no road. And both he and John C. Fremont, who'd explored the route a year earlier, told a lot of lies about it, because Fremont claimed that on his the shortcut he claimed he'd discovered, there was plenty of water, plenty of wood. It was just a great wagon road. Uh, when that was absolute malarkey. What lay west of Fort Bridger was the Salt Lake Valley. Well, 
the Wasatch Mountains, which are a range of the Rocky Mountains of considerable elevation, uh, forested, cut up by lots of creeks and canyons, and not uh, not amenable to a wagon road. And there were no good passes to get, like South Pass, to get wagons over. Hastings is involved in trying to make a wagon road. And he sets out a couple of weeks ahead of the Donner Party and is trying to get people up to the Weber River. And he's got a partner named James Hudspeth who has been to California and has been, uh, has ridden over the route with James Bryant who's ridden horses or mules over it. Hudspeth is actually at the front of the wagons. And when he gets to the Weber River, he decides he's just going to go straight down the river, whereas Hastings had intended to try to get the wagons over the mountains. And <laughs> so the poor Donner Party is is actually following what the, the wagons ahead of them have blazed, which is something of a wagon road. They're probably 60, 80 or so wagons ahead of them. They get to where today Hennifer stands, and they can't figure out where to go. The Weber River goes through a series of canyons, some pretty tight places, and there's no obvious route for a wagon to go because the wagons that Hudspeth had taken through went right into the river itself in spots, so they didn't leave a trail behind. And at this point... Reed decides that he's going to ride ahead and catch up with Hastings and figure out where Hastings meant to take people. So he and a couple of other men ride off, and they catch up with Hastings west of the Salt Lake Valley at Grantsville, and they somehow persuade Hastings to come back. And Hastings takes them top of one of the Wasatch Peaks, and shows them that he intended for them to come up from Hennifer and cut a road over the mountains. Now, if Hudspeth had actually taken the 80 wagons ahead of the Donner Party, um, there were more men. They might have been able to do it. But the route Hudspeth took going down the Weber only took about a week, 10 days, but it takes Hastings and his party three weeks to get those wagons from Hennifer to Salt Lake, which is about 50 miles, I think. In many ways, you might say that's what does them in. By now, every day is getting precious. And beyond that, once they finally do make it through the Salt Lake Valley and out to Grantsville, they're weeks behind the Hastings parties, the wagons, and weeks behind schedule. Why was that? Were the Hudspeth wagons just traveling a lot faster? Well, they weren't delayed by cutting a road over the Wasatch Mountains, for one thing. And they'd left earlier. And Reed had brought a pack of um, a pack of hunting dogs, and they'd hunted on the plains, and... Um, they really had sort of dawdled along. 
And when you read this history, it's heartbreaking because uh, you keep wanting to say, you got to get there. Oh, I know. It's like watching Titanic or something. So they make their way through the Hastings Cut off the canyon, and then they come to the Great Salt Desert. Wasn't that also just a lot worse than what they had been told it would be? Uh, yes. Uh, so the the Donner Party gets to Grantsville, where Reed had caught up with Hastings. So they cross through the Tooele Valley, and then Skull Valley. Then they climb over the, this desert mountain range. The Hastings Party is called the Scorpion Mountains. So you can imagine how pleasant that was. Top of the Scorpion Mountains, they can look out and see a moonscape ahead of them. It is the salt flats of the Great Salt Lake. And every mile you go west from the Cedar Mountains, it gets more and more like a moonscape. And finally, when you get out on the salt flats, you've got 90 waterless miles, not a single drop of water. You're completely dependent on oxen, uh, which of course depend on grass and water for fuel, and you've got to figure out how to get these poor beasts of burden over 90 miles moonscape, and it doesn't go well. How far could a healthy team of ox, say perfect conditions, how far could they pull a wagon in the course of a day? Ideally, you wanted to go about 15 miles a day so you didn't kill your animals or wear them out. You could do, you could do 15 regularly, reliably. And you could, if you really push the oxen, do um, 20. And remember, oxen could only go about two, two and a half miles an hour. So... You could do 30 miles if you push them hard. What the Donner Party does is you started pushing west and you didn't stop. You might stop for a couple of hours. Uh, you might feed and you gave them some water. But it, it, it's hellish. It's just absolutely awful. The trouble is, <laughs> on most of the way, it's a pretty solid base. And you can still see in places that, that Hastings cut off, the wagon road. And I, I've seen spots approaching Floating Island where you, it looks like you can see the tire tracks of the iron tires on the wagon wheels. This perfectly flat salt crust has a low point. And at that low point... It's, it's, it's much wetter than the surrounding salt flats. And when they got to that point, they had to veer away from that low point because they'd break through the crust and their, wa their wagon wheels would become entangled in this just horrific muck. And that, that, that's just another one of these awful conditions they have to endure. Plus, it's cold by this time. I think it's late September or October, and there's a wind that blows, and Virginia Reed, who's the adopted daughter of James Reed, gives a really um, powerful account of how all this happened. There's debate about how big 
the Prairie Palace wagon, which is a name they never used, but Virginia did. It seems to have been that the size was somewhat exaggerated in later tellings. But Reed had built a family wagon, as he called it, to accommodate his mother-in-law, Sarah Keyes. But Sarah Keyes dies before she can use it much. The wagon is supposed to be wider than than any other and uh, this, that, and the other. But it is big and it is slow. It couldn't have been as big as people project sometimes because they did get it through the Wasatch Mountains, and that's a tight squeeze in places. What happens in the desert is a series of disasters because once they get within smelling distance of water, they lose a big chunk of their oxen. And the western Shoshones and Goshutes, who live out there, told the Mormons much later on that they had actually collected the, the many of the oxen and had tried to take them back to the, give them back to the white folks, uh, hopefully in exchange for something. But that the white folks were so terrified and scared that they ran them off. Not only have you had oxen die from just privation, but now you've had a lot of them run off. And every step of this story gets worse and worse. One of Hastings' liabilities in this whole story is that he was not a good explorer. And if you follow the Hastings cutoff, which is later taken by railroads and other routes, you reach a point in Nevada, Ruby Valley. And as you look to the northwest, you can see a big open gap. And if the if, if Hastings had had time, and he, he later writes a letter and complains about this, he could have actually gotten to the Humboldt River and the California Trail without making a long hundred and some mile detour around the Ruby and Humboldt Mountains. But he doesn't know it's there. And he thinks, because James Kleiman, who's been with him on the way going east, has told him that when they see the Franklin River, that that's probably the headwaters of the Humboldt. It isn't. It runs into a lake and terminates. But Hastings doesn't have enough geographical sense to know that. But one of the real heartbreaking elements of this is if Hastings had actually looked at what that opening suggested and taken his parties northwest at the to the north end of the Ruby Mountains, none of this would have happened. We wouldn't be talking about this. The, the Hastings Cutoff might have become a reliable route of the California Trail, even with the horrors of the salt flats. What happens is the Donner Party winds up making this long detour around through what's called Hastings Pass and doesn't get to the Humboldt River until west of Elko, which is where the California Trail Center now stands. If you ever drive this or drive Interstate 80, there's a great museum uh, about 10 miles west of Elko, and it's where the 
uh, south fork of the Humboldt River comes into the Humboldt River. And that's the route that the Donner Party followed on the Hastings Cutoff. So do you think they knew by this time that they were in trouble? Or when did they start to really realize that they were in some serious trouble? They knew they were in trouble. But they didn't know how much trouble yet. (laughs) And it just keeps getting worse. Almost any group of people can get along for about three weeks. Longer than that. Group cohesion deteriorates, and group cohesion, after the stresses the Donner Party had been through, completely explodes uh, once they're back on the California Trail. And they're climbing up a sand hill, which was no fun because uh, sand was horrible for oxen and wagons, and... Reed gets in a fight with Jacob Snyder and kills him. And at this point, the Donner Party has had enough of this rich, arrogant character named James Reed, and they run him off. So Reed takes off and does say that he'll he'll get John Sutter to send back supplies. Some of the people... uh, take their, it's not Kiesberg, it's another German, or maybe it was Kiesberg, but they prop up their wagon tongue, which is how you hung somebody on the overland trail. <laughs> but And they didn't even want to give Reed a, a weapon to defend himself, but one of his daughters smuggles him a gun. And Reed and another man take off, and they... They get over the, the Sierra and they get to Sutter's Fort. And Sutter tells Reed that if if the daughter party gets caught in the mountain, if they slaughter their oxen, they'll be okay. But he also, Sutter also sends out uh, two vaqueros, two of his Indian cowboys, with supplies loaded on muleback. And there's another, Charles Stanton, is with, I think. I, yeah, I think it's Charles Stanton goes with Reed. So, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Reed does make Reed and Stanton make it into California, get to Sutter's, and meanwhile, the Donner Party is wandering and a fighting, <laughs> and gets into the Great Meadows where Reno is today. And they're way too late. They're way behind everybody else. Well, not that much behind everybody else. Uh, If they would have been a week ahead, it's likely they would have made it. Hey, can I back up just for one second? Because I want to know what the relationships really were like between the Donner Party and the Paiute Indians. In most of the stories, you hear that they were harassed by the Indians. The Indians shot their cattle with poisoned arrows. Were those exaggerated? So if you're if you're a northern Paiute, and which is a Shoshonean uh, tribe, and you have been living the good life in the Great Basin, eating the grasses and the not the grass itself, but the grass seeds and everything else, and suddenly all these arrogant white guys show up. And you know that the first thing these guys do is start shooting at you. And then they run their big oxen through the, the, 
what you depend on for food and kill it all. Um, and, and you find out that these big animals are really dumb and you can sneak up at night and put a bunch of poisoned arrows into them and then the, the white people will get mad but they'll move on and you can come back and eat the big animals. There, there's a really interesting comment by Patty Murphy, or no, Virginia Reed, and she in her fantastic recollection recalls, one of my main concerns was encountering Indians, the very thought of which frightened me to no end. But right here, let me say that we suffered vastly more from fear of the Indians before starting than we did on the plains. Reed had grown up listening to her grandmother's stories about an aunt uh, whom the Shawnees had held prisoner in Kentucky for nearly five years during the Re Revolution. The first tribe her family, the first tribe Reed, the Reed family met on the trail were Kansas running a ferry. And Patty Reed said, I watched them closely, hardly daring to draw my breath, and was very thankful when I found they were not like grandma's Indians. I could, I could go on and on about all this. It's hard to forget how how tough life was for these people. But again, um, we're dealing with, with human beings, and it's simply heartbreaking. Some Indians do approach the Donner Party early in the entrapment, I believe. They find that the whites are so fearful that they don't dare do anything to help them out. Wow, I'd never heard that before. Okay, so before I interrupted you, and thank you for that, they were by the Truckee River in the meadow before they ascended. That's where Sutter's supplies reach them and Charles Stanton. And they, they spend time trying to get their oxen in shape across the Sierra Mountains. And I have another question here. So... Charles Stanton and then the two Indian vaqueros come back. But where is James Reed? His whole family is still with the Donner Party. Where is he? The, the Mexican War is going on. And he uh, goes to Sa Sacramento and tries to, or not, not Sacramento, but San Francisco, and tries to get a party to go back and help rescue the, his family. But everybody's off fighting the Mexican War because... The Americans have botched their easy conquest, and they're trying to put down a revolt by the native Californians in Los Angeles. And so Reed gets distracted by that, and it's only after the snow starts flying that he is able to put together a rescue party and does. But, so the parties get into the mountains, they are at the foot of Donner Pass, they're at now what is now called Lake Donner, it was then uh, Truckee Lake, they're strung out along oh, at least 10 miles. The Donner family is behind everybody else, and it starts snowing. The snow falls and falls, and the Donner family winds up camping, and they realize that they're in big trouble. Again, it's, it, context is important here. If the Donner Party would have slaughtered its animals and been um, and, and stored the meat, they would have been fine. 
but as it, as it starts really pounding down, their oxen walk, wander off, freeze to death and die, and disappear under the snow. And what the reason they don't slaughter their animals and let them freeze is they're Midwesterners. They're not used to seeing winter set in in October and last until March and April. So they they don't take the opportunity to preserve the food that w- might have carried them through the whole disaster. You know, that just, you answered one of my big questions. I've often wondered how they could starve to death when they had all that livestock with them. Yep. And uh, that's part of the reason that in California nobody's that concerned about it, because they think, well, they got all that, all that livestock, they'll be okay. But the daughters, meanwhile, the daughter, and actually it's a group of, oh, seven or eight families, and they organize by families. And they've only got three real shelters, but they decide fairly early on that they're going to have to get out of there. And you had 60 people in three cabins at Truckee Lake and 20 people living in basically tents and wagons at the Donner family camp back on Alder Creek. Okay, so their situation is getting worse. They're starving. They're weakening. They realize they have to do something. So they set up this snowshoe party, this forlorn hope party, and they take off in mid-December. What do we know about them? A party of ten men, five women, and Sutter's Indian vaqueros leave, leave the Truckee Lake camp. Okay, so I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but I want to pick your brain on something else that I have a question about. Early on, William Eddy kills a bear. During the snowshoe party, he and Mary Graves are able to kill a starved deer, but they have almost no success. No. They can't seem to find any animals. Where were all the animals? Because uh, a- an- animals have more sense than people do. People aren't Even the Indians didn't camp up in the peaks of the mountains. Which brings up another question. They couldn't go up over the pass, but wasn't there another direction? Wouldn't they have had a much better winter if they had just abandoned all their animals and their teams and just gone back down the mountain the way they'd come up? Yeah, there wouldn't have been a daughter party disaster. So they just looked and thought it was just as difficult to go back the way they'd come as to keep going, so why not keep going? Pretty much, yeah. They they make snowshoes, and that's how the Forlorn Hope tries to get out. The Forlorn Hope reaches... Johnson's Ranch uh, in mid-January 1847 and word gets to Sutter's Fort and Edward Kern who's running the show sends word uh, spreads word that this disaster is happening. So can I ask you a little bit about, so some of the individual people are fascinating to me. There's this William Eddy guy. Early on he's able to kill a bear Later, he kills a deer. He seems to be the best hunter. He goes with the snowshoe party. He's the first person to reach Johnson Ranch. He seems to be the one who warned off the vaqueros that they were going to be killed and eaten, so he tries to save their lives. He acts in noble ways. He seems kind of heroic to me. What is your impression of William Eddy? Well, (laughs) if we're all telling 
our own stories, we can generally make ourselves look much better than whatever actually happened. <laughs> and I don't know, but I I I feel pretty sympathetic towards most of these people and don't uh, tend to hold grudges against them. And I know I know I've met descendants of James Reed who'd be quite upset that I, I characterized him as arrogant because Reed does demonstrate all kinds of heroic characteristics. Um, and another, and to go back to the Indian question, uh, the forlorn hope before it makes it to Johnson's Ranch spend nine days with the Indians who feed them and get them, rehabilitate them from starvation. So Indians play a variety of different roles here. So many different aspects of this are heartbreaking, profoundly disturbing. The the playing out of the rescue parties and their story really are acts of heroism. Now, when you say acts of heroism, I think of Tamsin Donner, for one. What's your impression of Tamsin? Tamsin is a, the, a, another real heartbreaker because she's she stays with her husband, George, who has hurt him, he's cut himself, and it gets infected, and she is offered to be rescued by one of these parties and declines to do it and may or may not be eaten by Keysburg, who becomes uh, known as a notorious cannibal. It's, again, a series of disastrous mysteries. And it, it, the details of all this are... Are, are extremely tough. It, it's easy to sit in the comfort of the 20th century and blame people. And it's ironic that being 19th century Americans, when the Donner Party, the Donner Party never blames anybody but themselves. And none of the Donner Party single out Lansford Hastings as a bad guy. That comes later with historians like <laughs> Charlie Kelly and me. I think they certainly deserve, or Hastings' conduct throughout all this is like most promoters. It's all self-serving. Well, speaking of Hastings, didn't he go down to South America later, like after the Civil War, and try to start some kind of a an empire down well, there? Well, Hastings gets a major's commission from the Confederacy, and... Uh, even though he's an, he's an Ohioan, he's not a Southerner, but he's a complete political hack and winds up establishing a Confederate slave colony in Brazil. And descendants of these Confederates are still down there. <laughs> I've heard that some of these Confederate soldiers went to Brazil after the war, but I had no idea that this was to establish a slave colony. I guess it all makes a little bit more sense now. Oh, yeah. It's all about... The whole Civil War is about slavery, and so is everything else. So Okay. Well, Will Bagley, thank you so much. We've gone way over the time that I had requested of you. You've been very, very generous, and I really appreciate it. Since Know Thyself is supposed to be the podcast where we learn what we can about who we are, I'm just going to ask you, what do we learn from the Donner Party? Or what do you learn about human nature just from your study of history in general? Uh, 
<laughs> I can tell you're excited to field that question. Well, it, it, it's hard to draw general lessons from history. But what I've learned from history is that, well, I believe that people are basically decent. And what we learn about about the Donner Party in terms of why do people eat each other, they eat each other because that's what human beings do when there's no other alternative. It's also a function of society and breakdowns. People only eat each other when their social conditions collapse, when there's no longer any organized system of human values. One of the remarkable lessons of the Mormon handcart pioneers is that they had lots of dead people, but they didn't resort to cannibalism because the Mormons maintained their social structure. And the daughters simply couldn't because uh, it had all collapsed. It had reached a point where it was every man and every woman and every child for themselves. Even at, at that level, it was only in the most desperate extremes that they fell back on cannibalism. But if they hadn't, we wouldn't remember them. In the other stories where people face incredibly desperate situations, um, typically they're not remembered. But because the daughters ate each other, we'll never forget about them. <laughs> well, there you have it right from Will Bagley. If you want to cement your legacy, the best way to do that is to eat somebody. But I have to make a little disclaimer. This is not the official position of Know Thyself, the podcast. There's got to be like an easier and more ethical way to get into the history books. And before I let you go, I just want to give you the opportunity, if people want to find out a little bit more about your work, or if they want to get something that you have written, can you give them any recommendations? Okay. I'll plug so rugged and mountainous, which... Either that or with Golden Visions bright before them, those are my two best books. I'll be remembered because I wrote a book about another horror show, Blood of the Prophets, Brigham Young and the Massacre at Mountain Meadows. But I, I think that my epic <laughs> history of the Oregon-California Trail is is my best writing. And the University of Oklahoma will issue it in paperback this spring. Well, that sounds great. I have to admit, I didn't even know you had written these, and you classify them as your best work. So I'm going to check those out. I had originally come across your work through Blood of the Prophets, just like you said, a higher-profile work. And I have to say, you seem a little critical of Brigham Young's handling of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I'll tell you what. The more you know about Brigham Young, the less likable that old con artist is. <laughs> so how do you really feel about him, though? Do you know what? Do you know why he diverted resources to save his steam engine and his books and glass and his freight over the lives of a thousand people starving and freezing with his handcart scheme? Because among... It, it wasn't. It wasn't the steam engine. It was the groceries, and you know what the groceries were? About six tons 
of liquor and tobacco. <laughs> That's hard to square with the Brigham Young that most people have heard of. And I'm sure you've gotten a lot of pushback on that already because he's not just a historical figure. For a lot of people, he's like a figure of faith. So what would you say to somebody who pushed back and said, you are mischaracterizing Brigham Young? If you're going to make those allegations, prove it. Well, I, I, I'd say look at the evidence, the letters. Look at what John Taylor. John Taylor is is the prophet who succeeds Brigham Young. And Brigham Young tries to blame Taylor. And Taylor, who was shot in the assassination uh, of Joseph Smith, is not going to stand for it. And he says to, to Young, you know I never would have put money before people's lives. And after that, Brigham Young folds like a cheap tent because Brigham Young knew that money was more important to him than people's lives. And his actions in the handcart disaster show that. I apologize, but at this point we did get cut off for a few moments, and I called back. But by then the interview was basically over. So I'm going to leave you with that interview by Will Bagley. I would encourage you to pick up any of his books because as engaging as he is to talk to in real life, his books carry that over very well. You get that same sense of a storyteller telling you a story, making it very interesting yet meticulously researched and exhaustive and authoritative in the topics that he covers. So I want to thank Will Bagley one more time. This has been Know Thyself, a special episode interviewing Will Bagley. Thank you for listening. Next time we'll get back into the topical series. We'll be picking up the cannibals of war. And things will go from ugly to offensive. So I'm not selling that very well, am I? But things will get ugly pretty quick, I guess. So I'll leave you with the Sons of the Pioneers. This is actually a song the Donner Party could have heard, played on the fiddle, or sung along with while they were traveling. Because it came out in 1845. One more river to cross. The dog called thankful a crocodile. One more river to cross.